Hi, you're listening to Talking About Organizations. This is part 2 of episode 9 on Hawthorne Studies by Elton Mayo. To get the text and for more information, please go to www.talkingaboutorganizations.com. If you haven't listened to part 1 of episode 9 yet, it is advisable that you go and do that before continuing, as this is a direct continuation of that conversation. And now, back to the discussion. We're talking about the Hawthorne Interview Studies, which is, a, as Demetrius pointed out at the beginning of the podcast, the Hawthorne Studies were about how worker comfort or comfort affects worker performance. And the interview studies were what Mayo and Roethlisberger and others did to find out, well, why did, why did the data not quite make sense? Why did, did productivity actually go, go up when they did things that they thought would decrease comfort, such as decreasing lighting? And and so Mayo talks about the uh, the importance of the interview program and how it had this liberating effect on the people that they were interviewing who were largely uh, women, if not exclusively women. And he, he talks about this idea, uh, and it was on page 76, he says, to find an intelligent person who was not only eager to listen, but also anxious to help, to expression uh, the ideas and feelings, but uh, dimly understood. This for many Thousand persons, and I made a bit of an exaggeration, but many people was an experience without precedent in the modern world. And there's a very strong statement there. But this whole idea that you go to talk to somebody and you, even even though they knew they weren't aligned with management, they just felt like, hey, this is a great opportunity to talk about things that are about. I mean, sometimes they were talking about things that weren't actually directly work related, but they just were getting stuff off their chest. I have that on page seventy three. Interestingly. I think we may have okay. different texts. No, I, I jumped ahead. I jumped ahead. It's actually, it is on 73, and then I, I was I was picking another place, but it is, you're right, it's 73. I think we could just like rewind a bit and talk about before they started doing the interviews, what they were doing there, which is exactly this thing about um, trying to understand how controlling different variables of the environment of the worker would um, impact productivity. Right, very positivist. Here's these variables. We're going to break it down. We're going to see what the impacts are. Great. Exactly, yes. And the interesting thing, and that's what um, was later come to be known as the Hawthorne effect or the observer effect, which is exactly that they started to um, raise the lighting um, that they had in the, the plant, and then they decreased it, and in both situations, productivity went up. And then it was exactly this idea that, you know, people, they're not just like mouses in the laboratory, they have their own understanding on what is going on, and once you start meddling with their situations, they are going to respond because they know they're being observed in, a, in an ex, unexpected way. So that is very, you know, that was the, where the puzzle comes. And then they have this whole interview program to exactly to try to make sense of all that. But, you know, we know that now. But imagine if you're Mayo or Roethlisberger or uh, any other person from their team and you're doing this experiment and you change one variable and uh, you get a result and then you change another variable and you get the exact same result imagine how perplexing that yes. must have been yeah i, I i'm sure yes, that was I actually what, that. what we in the states refer to as jaw dropping right or i think what um, in the uk you would call gobsmack right that it was just how could this be and, that, and what i find really interesting about this is the fact that the team then said, okay, we need to find out more about this. So just manipulating the variables or changing these things isn't going to tell us enough. So now we have to, we need to go interview people. And he actually even goes on to say, 
that a lot of the researchers didn't have the interview skills they needed. They had to work to, to develop them that in, in a way that you could listen. And, and, and in fact, I, I got a shudder when I'm reading it. This idea is, you know, you have to listen non-judgmentally and be receptive and not really say very much. And I was thinking, oh, that's all the stuff I was supposed to do during my dissertation <laughs> and messed up, at, you know, at the very beginning <laughs> and got in big trouble, rightfully so. I, wa- I wanted to bring that up because I saw your uh, interview schedule and it's yes. almost word for word what they have here. Yeah, exactly. So I'm, I'm glad it struck you as well. Yeah, I'm glad it struck you as well because it was the same thing for me. It took me a while to to learn how to become a good listener. And then, and of course, when I was kind of puzzling myself and also sort of, well, how am I going to do this better? I realized I didn't get any training in this. So I wasn't, I wasn't unhappy about that. I just thought, well, I'm going to have to go practice a lot more. And so in my particular case, in fact, I was just giving some advice to somebody about this the other day. I said, I found you know, uh, people who would let me practice, right? And I, and I don't know, you know, Mayo doesn't really talk about that. Maybe they practice with the, the participants of the study. But in my case, I found five friends and I let them, I, they let me interview them and I worked on my, uh, you know, my, my technique that way. So I, th- I, it really resonated with me when he said, oh yeah, they don't know how to do this stuff and it, and it takes a great skill because it really is a skill. Yes. Although I have to say that um, the way he describes it and he has all this idea that how much interviews, um, help on emotional relief. I think that's what he talks about. Yes, yes. It reads for me so psychological and psychoanalytical almost, you know? Yes, because he talks about how this... He didn't go too deeply down that path, but sure looks like that because he's talking about how this the workers or the participants were having this liberating experience where there was somebody who was actually interested in what they had to say and was taking note of it. And And, and remember, he said... There wasn't a lot of interaction where there's back and forth and someone saying, oh, yeah, you're having this problem, or they're just listening. I thought that was pretty amazing what a big impact just listening had. It, yeah. it is almost uh, lifted from uh, Freud's initial work before he got into the his theories on sexuality. The, what was it called? On dreams? Something? Yeah, mm-hmm. dream theory. Yeah. yeah, that was there as well, because uh, you can see that through this interview protocol, which uh, starts that... Uh, Give your attention to the interviewee, listen, don't talk, never argue, never give advice, listen mm-hmm. to what, what they want to say, do not want to say, cannot say. And then the mm-hmm. last two points are basically about helping them free associate, which is uh, a cornerstone of psychoanalytic technique. I mean, I don't have a problem with him borrowing this from uh, psychology or psychoanalysis. In, if anything, it's... Uh, reassuring and uh, shows some interdisciplinarity that we alluded to in the first half of this uh, episode. But it is interesting that uh, they don't say that they weren't trained in conducting interviews. It's just that it seems the uh, main um, uh, paradigm for interviewing back in the day was what we probably refer to as semi-structured interviews or even structured interviews. And here they had to sort of go for this stream of consciousness uh, uh, similar to David and Nicolini's interview to the double technique. Yes. And if I can just plug some of that, there is actually a recent paper by him um, and some people from um, Italy exactly talking about the interviews of the double, which is a research technique that consists in just letting the person talks about a day in your life, how they conduct your work, 
and you doing almost like as a reflection game, using that to um, instill some reflection capacity, like a mirror game actually with the person. Um, so interesting to see like a link all the way back there. <laughs> I agree with you, Pedro. That that is that is a, an important way to collect data. And I was going to build on what what Demetrius said about the, so this is a little bit of overlap with Freud and psychoanalysis. And you, and you said the same thing, Peter, where he talks about, he, I think he's doing a bit of psychoanalysis himself, uh, that it's perhaps based on these studies, but also you get the feeling maybe it's based on other studies that he's done. He's sort of generalizing because he talks about the, the change in the social order, right? From going from this established or the good old days, as Demetrius was talking about earlier, to the adaptive social order and this kind of unanticipated problems for management that it creates. And then he, now, so now he gets into, I think, his borderline psychoanalysis. And I don't know if the, he doesn't really give us enough information from the data. To conclude it, so we have to take it on faith that he's got these right, the right inferences, which would never have flown in my dissertation. But, but uh, he's, you know, he's writing this book, and he and he says on page seventy six, for the individual worker, the problem is really much more serious when we're talking about this as changed uh, of to adaptive social order. He says he has suffered a profound loss of security and certainty about his actual living and in the background of his thinking. And for all of us, the feeling of security and certainty derives always from assured membership of a group. And then if this is lost, he says, no monetary incidents can make it up. So, so that sure seems like, or sounds to me like in the board of psychoanalysis. And I'm not criticizing it. I'm just saying that he's kind of taking it to us, its logical extension there. So I, I was a little disappointed not having the data, but I, but I, I just had to take it on faith that that uh, these are the kinds of things, it's kind of safety and security things. We talk about that all the time now, but I think, I think uh, like Demetrius said earlier, very surprising for them back in, back in the time when he's collecting this data. For me, this more resonates, uh, um, okay, for me, this less resonates with psychoanalysis and more with the, the thing that uh, he was writing about in part one, where um, people get uprooted from their communities. I'm just going to say two things. One is that I didn't know about this whole interview um, program that happened in Hawthorne. I knew more about the whole lighting experiments and the bunk wiring on experiments. So this came a bit of a surprise for me. And my, I would say my issue with that, if I should play devil's advocate, is that I get the whole point of interdisciplinarity and boring from psychoanalysis, but my problem is that he talks a lot of how much these interviews reflect the group, and that's the end of the day his contention. But I'm not really convinced that when someone is talking, he's really representing the group and the issues that they're bringing up. It's you no know, give you insight on the relations and the dynamics so much of the person. You well, he does problem. I, I do, and I think it's because he doesn't give enough data for us to conclude that, right? In in modern mm. studies, and what I did with my dissertation, I had to present that data so people could see. I, you know, I didn't have all the transcripts, but I gave a lot of evidence and backing up from from the statements that people had made. That help would help convince people reading it. Oh, okay, these are these are good inferences to be making. He he leaves all of that out, which I think has something to do with perhaps scholarship of the time. So I was a little less satisfied about that because I just thought, hey, he's reading a lot into these studies and not giving us the data. But I think he, what he, the point he's trying to make. I mean, whether so, I agree with Demetrius. It does tie back to the sort of things of insecurity and and alienation that come from about the, the changes in modern society. But I think he's also, the other major point he's making, and to me as a sociologist, 
I, you know, jumped off the page at me is he's talking about the reason I, they went into the interview program was that they were, they had this sense, you know, because they had this data that didn't quite make sense, as Demetrius mentioned, they had this sense that they were missing a, a, a excluded determinant. There's a variable that they were leaving out and that it did, they didn't know what to do or they didn't know what it was. So they said, well, let's go get deeper into the data. Let's go, let's go do this kind of like what he called a clinical study of the situation to see what they can learn about that. So I just thought that that was really good because as a qualitative researcher, I'm, I'm just there going, yes, yes, that's good stuff. I think what Pedro was alluding to, and I mean, this is an excellent point, and you are completely correct, but on the parallel note, I think what Pedro was alluding to is this uh, debate in the qualitative methodologies about whether uh, you can actually derive realistic representation of group work through interviewing individuals, because... Uh, the argument goes that uh, individuals may not necessarily be aware or know what they do in groups when they're reflecting individually. Yeah, it is a challenge. I agree. It's it's what it's a big problem of generalizing from qualitative research too. That's great, and I think that leads us to the other experiment or whatever the other case study that happens in Hawthorne, which is the bank wiring thing in which they got this group of girls um, and they put them, I think, in a separate place and they start experimenting with specific variables like more rest, less rest. And the interesting thing at that point, if I don't, I'm not mistaken, is that they got to suggest what they thought could be done. And they, I think every... Yes. Yes. And that's when they started really... You can really see more of the group dynamics because they were observing a group at work in that case. So I think the methodological takeaway is that if you're doing research on group work and by extension by extension pretty much anything to do with organized labor you should really go and observe what happens um in addition or instead or prior to conducting um interviews one on one. Yeah, and I think they do that. I'm not sure quite what what the order is, but he does hint on observing the group work, so it's not clear exactly that come first to come after, how, you know, how do they do that? But I think that I agree completely agree with Demetrius. That's a great point that you really also have to. You can't just rely on people's individual memories of what you know what they were doing outside of the group work. And so for my dissertation, I did a little bit of both. I, I actually observed the group and I was able to talk to people about kind of what they thought was going on. But I was also able to say, so in the group, this person said this, and then you said that, or. This other person said this, and then what were you thinking about there? Right? So I was, I was able to kind of remind them of some of the group dynamics, and my interviews would have been very flat from a group dynamics point of view if I hadn't been able to do have those observations so I could add that to the interviews. So I said something, I think I want to now defend him a bit. <laughs> so, you, so you can't make your mind <laughs> up between like. devil's advocate and advocate. Yeah, exactly. You see, I'm angel's advocate, devil's advocate. I just want to take all, uh, take okay. all sides. <laughs> exactly. You're, that's good. You're, you like to look at all sides. That's good. Because there is one thing that I do like when he talks about the interviews, and I think actually something later, is that he pretty much says that when you start hearing what all the concerns and the issues that the workers are, you need to be very attentive not to take the description that they give to be the the real cause. You know, so almost there is there is implicit that they didn't know. I have to go to the root cause of the thing. So you don't have to just take the complaint, but but look to the diagnosis. It's like there is the complaint is the symptom, but you have to go and see what is the cause. And he says that because he gives a great example of I think a plant. He gives a, an example from a book, if I'm not mistaken. That's an account of a factory in China in which everyone, the workers, were continually complain 
about um, the food in a cafeteria and they realized that actually um, that was only you know, like a scapegoat or to the frustration that or a symptom a symptom exactly yeah, a symptom. for frustration yeah. that they have with the management or something like that yeah yeah they basically relocated the factory and from from the coast to the the, the hinterland and apparently some way that they were doing this disempowered the people of the highest skill so like you said they were they were in the they were in so they were in the cafeteria what we would call a cafeteria the, uh, and uh breaking crockery <laughs> and actually doing it on purpose yeah. and even though the food was better than what they could get outside and they and yeah. they actually admitted it so yeah that that was a great illustration yes which is again something that you know things like root cause analysis that you know are used in different kinds of industries and is a lot to lean are pretty much along those lines you know um and it's interesting that again he is putting a bit of there when he's discovering how to do field work at the same time so i like that yeah. So, so one other comment I want to make about in that chapter about the when he talks about the interview method mm -hmm. is uh, he makes a very strong statement on page eighty six. He says the interview method is the only method extant that can contribute reasonably accurate information or indeed any information as to the extent of actual cooperation between workers. And then he goes on to talk about teamwork and that kind of stuff. And I'm not saying he's wrong. I just thought that's a very it's making a very strong statement. And then he t he says later in the in the final chapters, a lot of the stuff is based on many many studies that they've done, not just these particular ones he included in the book. I wonder against whom is he writing that? You know, what is his point of contention? Well, he mentions uh, on page eighty three that certain industrialists, rigidly disciplined in economic theory, seem to have had a problem with the mm -hmm. uh, yes. study. So it, it may be that he is addressing that group of um, people. There is something that I want to say, but I don't remember if it is in the absenteeism um, study or I think it has to do with when he talks about the interviews, actually. That he he says something about the manager and the importance of the manager to being like skilled on exactly that ability, which is to listen to people, um, which is very interesting because of course you would say oh that's so taken for granted, but at the same time it flies in the face of many con even contemporary ideas of leadership, or which would more show the leader as a commander, as someone that has to control, not necessarily so much someone that is more you know ideas that we have of relational leadership and this more human resource centered approach to you know being close to the worker and being attentive to their complaints you know i think he opened a lot of on that area yeah i would certainly say he's ahead of his time because a lot of that stuff we read today and we say so what's controversial about that <laughs> but but apparently at the time you know given the fact that this was where uh, Taylorism was run rampant, and I, I'm not trying to be critical of Taylor because even he thought his ideas were mis misused or misapplied in many ways. But th this is a this is a tremendous revelation for for his time. So yeah, I think that's a lot of these things we we, we say today. Oh yeah, that's what they should be doing. <laughs> they weren't though. I think that in a way that's still very very important today because I was thinking I don't want to be polemic, but if you think of the typical case study by Harvard Business Review. They always have this assumption that you're going, I'm going to present you the case and you as a manager or someone in a position of power yes. should know and do it. And never there is like this space for, well, you we should really try to understand the situation and talk with the workers. Yeah, you get the sense that it's this top-down approach. Like the managers are supposed to have all the answers. I agree with you. That, that sort of is the undercurrent in many of the cases. So I, I, I very much value you know, like what he's proposing here. And I think it got a bit lost <laughs> in history. 
Okay, so so in chapter five, he writes about the absenteeism and labor turnover. So it's two that's two different case studies, as I recall. And he was looking at so the first one was they were looking at absenteeism in the metalworking industry in World War II. And there's a lot of really good scientific description, I would say, about how they set the study up, how they look for how they try to control the variables, how they try to look for for companies that were that were similar enough that they could they could look for dif- differences that made that were important for the outcomes. So I thought that was very well done. Where he's presenting lots of data, he's got charts, he's looking at what he calls companies A, B, and C. They were right next to each other, and so you could say, okay, well, they got the same kind of input of workers. And therefore, whatever the differences exist must be because of what, you know, the internal policies. And they were, so they were basically uh, trying to understand, well, why did company C have much lower absenteeism than, than the other two companies? And so I think, you know, great, great case study, because they were talking about essentially that the foreman of the group that they were studying, I think it was, um, it was, a, it was a, the mold, the mold shop. I think that's who it was. Because it's, a, it's a very important uh, form of work in steel industry because it, it's, they, they refer to it as a bottleneck. And they said basically the, the, uh, foreman, uh, in company C was expected to be attentive to people issues as well as technical. And was supposed to be able to, and, and in fact, the, the, one of the key differences, with, and, I, and this really jumped off the page of me, is that in Company C, the foreman had a technical assistant who could help him managing the technical details of the work and the schedules and that sort of stuff. So the foreman had more time to work on people issues because Mayo says, look, it's not enough to say I want the foreman to pay attention to stuff like this. And, I, and I've actually seen this in in my working uh, career where you, everybody says, oh, yeah, we want the foreman and the leader to be doing this. But then you give them eight hundred other things to go do, <laughs> and so they're, they're they're not able to get it go done. Or you or you give them these jobs to do that basically uh, tie the person to a computer, entering data all day. And then we say, well, how come that person's not out supervising their workers and, and trying to understand how to help them and what you know what their issues are? Well, because we create these systems that that keep him or her from doing that. So uh, I thought that was a it was very interesting you know case study. There's kind of two things. Okay, people issues, but you have to be able to give the foreman. What we would call bandwidth, right? The the ability to focus. Yes, on something. that is great, actually, Ralph. Um, just a quick thing. There's actually studies by the Icon, the research center that's supporting the podcast, that um, about um, top leaders and showing exactly that without the infrastructure in place, you, the leaders cannot really achieve what they are set up to achieve, and how important it is to nurture that and give the conditions for them to uh, be able to do that. I think that was interesting here is that. You can really see, as we were saying, the improvement that this research group went through. You know, like well, in this on this case study, it's completely oh, different absolutely. thing in a way. Well, but think about it. it so it builds on the other case studies, right? Because on page one hundred one hundred two, he says, uh, while improved working conditions are perhaps a necessary basis for better teamwork, right? And that's what you could kind of include from the textile plant. Oh, we have to give people rest, and we have to you know give them a say. He says. They do not of themselves lead inevitably to the better teamwork. So you can see that these, that, that the research team, like you said, is growing or they're getting, they're, you know, they're getting more discerning about the, some of these other factors involved. And then he basically, he goes on to talk a bit more about, uh, the, the need for people to associate and the fact that they, you know, giving groups more flexibility in, in their working conditions and kind of a, and that they, that this goes beyond financial incentives. So that, that, I think that was just reinforcing what they learned earlier. Yes. On page 111, he writes that 
man's desire to be continuously associated in work with his fellows is a strong, if not the strongest, human characteristic. And then he warns that disregarding that or uh, not taking that into account is a grave managerial mistake. Yeah, he, yeah, he continues on, because I thought, I thought that paragraph was great too, and he says, efficiency experts, now who's that make you think of, <laughs> had assumed that pro- the primacy of the financial incentive, in, and then he goes on to say, in this they were wrong, <laughs> but not until the conditions of working group you know, uh, formation were satisfied, the, the the financial incentives in this particular group come into come into play, like you were talking about earlier, Pedro. What's interesting here is exactly this point that there is an informal group dynamics going on. There's an, an informal norms and habits that people abide to. You know that the whole just oh we just give incentives, people are going to follow through. You know well that's when you see that it doesn't really work. But I if I remember well, what is interesting in these case studies um, about absenteeism is that. One of the reasons that one plant or the other is doing better or not so much, there is something about the socialization aspects that, you know, they got an influx of new workers and these people took some while to adapt and understand exactly these roles in place, which is something that is, you know, very unexpected on traditional theory, but it it becomes much more normal when you understand his whole contention about human relations in the group. Yeah, because he's talking about, well, as I say, you're right, because he's talking about industries or organizations that scaled up massively, right? So they went, he, and he's talking about one company that was three or 500 workers or some number like that, and they went to 2,000, right? And so it, you get the sense that the, the things they were doing before didn't scale very well, so you have to kind of rethink how you give workers some autonomy and input to the skills they develop and their, their working rules. I think it's worthwhile bringing some of historical context into play here that the scaling uh, happened around about the time that the U.S. joined World War II. The situation and the competitive environment, as it were, were not... Uh, it, it, it wasn't business as usual. It was quite uh, quite different back then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but if you think about it, it was a great opportunity to study these things, right? Because these big organizations... you know. Uh, um, Increasing the, the tempo of operations and then having to deal with all these, these new workers coming in. So kind of a, a great laboratory for looking at these social disruptions and chaos that he was talking about. Yeah, it's like a natural laboratory. Yeah, yeah so I was thinking. Uh, my point is that uh, <clears throat> mm-hmm. this needs to be accounted for because uh, given the social pressures, the turnover both in society and in the workforce and later on the inclusion of uh, veterans in the workforce these are so these are all unusual circumstances that uh, organizations and uh, people have to deal with at the time and while uh, one may be tempted to resort to this uh, romanticized uh, idea of the whole nation whichever nation it may have been pulling together in one direction in this existential struggle um, clearly that that's uh, fiction so um, my point is that whilst it's probably not a huge effect, it may be something that uh, should be corrected for when interpreting and applying Mayo's findings to a more civilian situation, as it were. So, um, for instance, when he talks about knowledge in the next chapter, which is uh, entitled Patriotism is Not Enough, We Must Have No Hatred or Bitterness Towards Anyone, when he talks about things like knowledge transfer and that, uh, what uh, I think Ralph or you, Pedro, um, mentioned in the beginning of our conversation to do with tacit knowledge, 
that is a slightly different situation where you have regular staff turnover and uh, significant knowledge sharing challenges that go with that or where you're in a situation where your stuff might get pulled and there is a uh, you know to service and uh, you have to deal with uh, <clears throat> abrupt disruptions in your knowledge infrastructure so to speak i i agree this this it's because he uses chapter six to talk about that you can't just rely on people's uh, goodwill and whether you want to talk about patriotism or motivation or you know, those kinds of things, that you actually have to do things to help them find ways to cooperate and communicate. To, because the, the you can't take the, this reinforces this point earlier in the book, that you can't take the cooperation amongst individuals in a group for granted. It just doesn't, it doesn't work that way. I couldn't read this chapter <clears throat> very well because the claims he makes about the war and the post-war geopolitical environment they're just so one-sided and narrow-minded that uh, I don't know. Did you have this? Uh, they were very hard. Yeah, like, he talks about League of Nations and how it could have contributed to like, World War II, and I was thinking, wow, where's that stuff coming? Or, from? or things like uh, this black and whiteness of of the world. As yes. on page one nineteen, yes. he writes that. Um, the democracies have been fortunate in the discovery of military leaders and first-class soldiers to follow their lead. The allies are superior here by default, who together have taught Germans and Japanese that civilization will not tolerate aggression, tyranny, and soulless brutality. Wow, you expect to hear music playing in the background when that's <clears throat> when that's going on. I was just going to add that, you know, it's interesting. He is a good field worker in a way in which he gave us all these tools that became common about doing research and organizations, but when he launches himself in this kind of social commentary, both in the beginning and the end of the book, it doesn't really fly well. <laughs> no, no, and, and this is what we mentioned in the beginning, that even his rendition of the social problems, yeah. which is half of the book, essentially, yeah. is uh, very basic and uh, very derivative. Well, and, and like you said, black and white, and I, and I, I don't, th I'm not sure it weakens his point, but it certainly is going a far afield from the point he was trying to make. So, I, yeah, I didn't find that very satisfying either. I did, I did like though, when in the first part of the chapter where he's talking about dealing with the international and national situations, and I'm not talking about necessarily war, but you know, having different workers and the challenges in organizations. He said basically, there's you, you have to go the way of science, and and he talk, he breaks down the steps, you know, basically. First-hand knowledge and knowledge of acquaintance of the details of what's what's going on on the ground, like Petro said earlier, and then this being the administrator or the clinician or the artisan, having the intimate knowledge of the uh, of the facts that, and then this well, actually, they already have the knowledge of the facts. It's sort of skill in dealing with them, and then the th third one is this clear statement for laboratory and you know test development. I love that science aspect of it of the logical implications of this effective skill. And he talks about, because he talked about earlier in the book that people don't have that skill and, and some of it's social. So I, I thought, so I think that was some of the core, the good part, the, you know, the most interesting or effective part of chapter six. I also, it also left me a little bit cold when he does this, this, uh, what I would call preaching about the world order and democracies and those kind of things. Cause I'm just thinking, well, you know, where's that in the data in the Hawthorne studies? Main takeaway from this chapter amongst the, um, the rubble that he left behind with all those statements was uh, him basically saying over a number of pages, starting with one eight with one eighteen, that uh, 
things that are considered soft and touchy-feely like motivation and just being friendly and saying good morning and smiling to your fellow men and women they are very important and have a huge knock-on effect on uh, satisfaction and motivation and uh, uh, other such key aspects uh, to organizational life to to emphasize that Demetrius he has a very i think good statement on page 118 where he says morale the maintenance of cooperative living is commonly spoken of as an imponderable an intangible and these epithets serve to justify the idea that the study of such matters is beneath the notice of the engineer, the economist, the university. And so, there, you know, he's saying that, like you said, it has a great knock-on effect that, that has m- many other factors. And I think he tried to illustrate that in the, t- the case studies. It, it kind of, I, w- I would say it's a little bit indirect. He, he, it's, a very, it's a very strong statement, and he's kind of he's getting out of the case studies. But I think this kind of sums it up very nicely. And then he basically uh, cringes a bit in, in text about how we haven't trained you know students in the uh, study of the social situation to pay attention to these things that were that society or industry or university or whatever is paying m- m- uh, too much attention or excessive amount of attention to the technical aspects of work. And so the the motivation, like you said, really has an important impact that Mayo is telling us we need to pay more attention to. Okay, so he's touching upon issues that are going to be touched upon by psychologists. Let us put that way, you know, like motivation. But he's not taking it as, you know, as something, you know, to be found in the individual, but something to be found in the group. And it's not something to be found about in the will of people, the willingness that they have, but that's from the norms, the habits, and the things that are can be maneuvered upon, can be changed. You know, the situation, if you want to think about Mary Park Follett, you know, that the things that are tangible and can be engineered almost. I'm glad you mentioned Follett, because I was also thinking that in, in his discourse on uh, how um, engineers and managers of the day are ignoring these softer social aspects, I was thinking that, uh, has he not read Follett? <laughs> because he <laughs> yeah. could have. Certainly, historically, they co-inhabited the more or less same time period. And, and the same mm-hmm. geographic area as Follett was from New England. Yes. He's up in Harvard, so you'd think he would have True. been aware of her. I'm surprised he didn't yeah. mention her. She was hanging yeah. out in Harvard uh, quite a bit as yeah. well. Yeah, Interesting, because she's the one that talks about the situation, which is pretty much what he's hitting at in the whole book. But, well, yeah. it's not there. This is a, this is a very strange text. So uh, he starts with uh, um, commentary on the entire social problems that beset the civilization he's in. Then he divorces from that and talks about the case studies, at the end of which he comes back to talking about uh, World War II and uh, makes an example of um, Germany under uh, National Socialists as a nation that has been technically most... uh, competent in the world, but had no social skills, so here is what happened. Essentially, that is his uh, conclusion on page 123. Yeah, that was pretty amazing. And, and, and he finishes with a sentence that I just thought was amazing. If our social skills had advanced step by step with our technical skills, there would not have been another European war. Wow. Yeah. Oh. That is, uh, that's a pickle. Yeah, exactly. I think you're a little bit off the, you know, straying from the case studies here. <laughs> it's not just that. The whole idea that uh, 
somehow human violence uh, can be preempted by interpersonal uh, communication. That's a stretch. Well, I would say utopian in, in many respects. Yes, because the point is exactly the situation might be maneuvered to create more violence, to create more, you know, um, lack of trust or, I don't know, all kinds of things that can be done. Well, and in fact, that's a lot of what the Nazis did. They they spent, uh, they have a great understanding of how people function in groups and how you could use group dynamics against them. And so I, I would say it's it's very short-sighted to say, oh, yeah, if we just knew more about social relations, we wouldn't have this problem. They knew a lot about it. They just, you know, manipulated them for ends that, you know, are questionable. There is almost like a bias in his idea of cooperation, teamwork, and group relations in which it's always going to be soft and nice and good if to do it. Yes, <laughs> yes. What do you mean always? Nice? Almost. <laughs> <laughs> okay, there is a bias. Yeah. Okay. But to kind of continue with our... Uh, podcast commentary in the social situation of Mayo's time, mm-hmm. just a note about the whole uh, National Socialist thing, is that they were rational humanists, essentially. Oh, so absolutely. The whole, the whole idea behind that, uh, that whole uh, project of, uh, of that time was uh, rational humanism. So it's not that they were... Uh, a nation of uh, Borgs or some kind of... Uh, <laughs> or technocrats, right? S- yeah, soulless uh, mechanists that uh, just for some reason, you know, it wasn't Skynet. They just they didn't decide to <laughs> exterminate all uh, socially minded people. It, it's, uh, it, it actually arose through the, these ideas of uh, what people are and what motivates and all the things that we mentioned. But surely this is not the time or place or the podcast for for that that's true so no and, I, and, I, and I, so so i think you can take value out of mayo's exhortations to get into the data to to make sure you know what, how, what's going on first and then sort of extrapolate from the data to to try to understand social relations he's on a little bit weaker ground when he, when he starts talking about how it's an unalloyed good to do this. Everything will work out properly, and we wouldn't have World War War. I get, you know, I get it. So, bit of a stretch. And then you could, uh, so in, I don't want to necessarily say in his defense, but you can understand, you know, given the age he's writing, that's a profound experience and cultural shock and many levels to people. So, yeah, you could see how that could creep into somebody's writing. Okay. So, should we conclude? I, I'm out of ideas or notes from the book, so I, so I enjoyed it. I thought it was an interesting book and a lot of interesting overlap. With, I like the fact that it overlapped with Bernard, that we could see the overlaps with uh, Mary Parker Follett. Sort of the he's not saying Taylorism is wrong. He's just saying mm-hmm. you, you can't stop there. You have more to do. So I, I like it from the fact that it kind of sums up and continues on some of the threads you've already written. I, I think you made a good choice in picking it, Demetrius. Yeah. Oh, I, I did pick it. I forgot. Thank you. As I mentioned, I picked yeah. it um, not to diminish my uh, potential contribution uh, because it was available so that uh, <laughs> listeners can check it out as well. well. That worked out well. I just want to say it's interesting that I think the more we read, the more interesting the whole thing becomes because we are able to trace relations. And what I think is interesting here is that we are seeing the birth of what's something that's really taken for granted, which is research, empirical research in organizations. Yes. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. And so I think for our listeners out there, you can see these threads weaving together in many ways, and this one ties them together very well, mm-hmm. about the importance of research and you know collecting data. And Mayo is really the first one 
who's got really good hard data in addition to his case studies. So you can get a lot of the details, yes. uh, technical stuff if you want to, but, but this is one where you can say, okay, he's basing this on not just personal experience, mm-hmm. but also his case studies. So yeah. uh, I, I think that's a, that's a, the readers, if you, listeners, if you've been listening so far, and if you haven't, go back and listen to some of the other things where we, you know, we do summarize Taylor and Mary Parker followed and Bernard. All the other things. Yeah, so all those other pieces fit, well, sorry, all the episodes, but they all, they fit together. It's a, we're, I think that's one of the nice parts about what we're seeing in the podcast is these, these strands weave together and, and I'm, I know we're going to do that in the future. Well, I mean, with the exception of, um, episode on Maslow and episode on, um, Carnegie Mellon School, we're pretty much still in the same time period, which is between the late 19th century and a couple of, opening decades of the 20th century so a lot of what management is based on that all sort of happened through this collection of greatest hits that we're going through yep and you can see that and that concludes episode 9 on the social problems of an industrial civilization one of the texts of the famous Hawthorne studies by Elton Mayo thank you for listening next time we have something special planned to celebrate our 10th episode we are going to discuss a film, 12 Angry Men. As always, for more information about that, please visit our website at www.talkingaboutorganizations.com or get in touch with us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, our website, or now Instagram as well. All links to social media are available from the website. If you're enjoying the podcast, please tell your friends, colleagues, and students about us. If you feel like you might want to get involved in one way or another, we have just launched a new section of the website under the podcast menu where you can learn more about how that can be arranged. We are always very keen to interact and work together with our listeners. Thank you for joining and I hope to see you next time as we watch and discuss our first management film here on Talking About Organizations. 